the Jodcast, reverting to our original names, with Adam Avison, Alex Clark, Tana Joseph, Unsung Lee, Niall McCallum, Ian McDonald, and Tom Scrack. The Jodcast, April 2018 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Adam, and joining me in the studio this time are Niall and Tana. Hello. Hi. As it's uh, Tana's first presenting, we're going to hand over to her so she can introduce herself and what she does here at JBCA. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Tana Joseph. I am a South African X-ray astronomer and I've just started here at the University of Manchester. So I'm a brand new postdoc here and I'm really excited to be joining this fantastic group of radio astronomers working on all sorts of things like pulsars and distant galaxies and things inside our own galaxy. I'm excited to be here with you all and uh, you'll be hearing more from me on Jodcast as time goes on. Cool, thank you very much and welcome. It's nice to have new blood. Excited to be here. Okay, in the show this time, Unsung Lee and Dr. Ian MacDonald answer your astronomical questions, and we interview Stephen Longmore about star formation in the Galactic Centre. But first, before all of that, Alex Clark talks to Rachel Ainsworth in this month's Jod Bite. Hi, I'm Alex, and today on the Jodcast, I'm here with Rachel Ainsworth. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So, Rachel is a postdoc here at JBCA. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, sure. So, I'm originally from Hampton, New Hampshire in the U.S. Um, I really enjoyed physics and astronomy in high school, but when I entered uh, my undergraduate uh, degree at the University of Tennessee, I wasn't entirely sure it's what I wanted to do as a career. Um, I entered undeclared into university, but on the physics track, because I knew I wanted to do science. I just wasn't quite sure what exactly. Um, I also had a passion for photography, so my idea at the time was that I could make a career out of designing cameras and telescopes, because that was a beautiful synergy between physics and photography and art. Um, But then, during university, I started uh, crashing the grad students' uh, astrophysics and cosmology seminars, where I heard really cool things on on the latest astrophysical and cosmological research. So I got really interested in it. I applied for and was selected for an internship at NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And this is really where my career in um, observational astronomy took off. I worked on a project uh, reducing uh, spectra of pre-planetary nebula, which are dying stars, which which have a lot of mass loss. Um, and also of stellar interlopers, which are young stars which are speeding through and interacting with the interstellar medium. So I really enjoyed my time there. Um, and the next logical step was to apply to do a PhD. And that's when I ended up in Dublin, Ireland at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. And I conducted my PhD there with Professor Tom Ray, um, studying uh, the radio emission properties of young stellar objects. So instead of dying stars, I was now studying newly born stars, um, which also exhibit mass loss. And then after that, I did a postdoc at DIAS, um, following along from my PhD research. And then after that, I am here at JBCA doing a second postdoc. Cool. So you've been at JBCA for almost a year now. And I hear that you're getting very involved in pushing for open science in astronomy. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, It's a topic I'm really passionate about. Um, As you're probably aware, many scientific fields sort of suffer from traditionally closed research practices. So 
data isn't always shared. It can be quite difficult to reproduce results. Methods are often obscured. Uh, there's a lot of competition in academia for jobs and funding. So this kind of drives people to 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 keep a lot of their stuff um, to themselves and not not as widely accessible. Um, to make them more competitive. And so the open science movement is trying to return research to its fundamental core values of just making science accessible to everybody and making scientific results uh, reproducible and transparent so that uh, we don't have duplication of effort and all these kinds of um, things. And so my favorite aspect to open science is that if research open up all of their um all of their science, so they make their data openly and freely available on the internet, they uh, publish their code so that anybody can use it and adapt it, um, and if they are very transparent and clear about their methods and results, then science becomes more accessible to everybody, um, and in particularly under uh, represented minority groups, under resourced communities, um, and everybody has access to science. And so I've been um, working with Mozilla, if you think uh, the web browser Firefox. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through training with them uh, to learn how to be an open leader. And so through them, I worked on an open project to create an open science how-to kit for astronomers so that they are able to open up their research workflow from proposal to publication. Because I feel like the, the best way to promote open science in astronomy is to make it easy for researchers to practice openly. Um, I also am working to organize more workshops and events within the department uh, to teach people how to use platforms such as GitHub and, and other sort of open research tools. And I'm also working to integrate open science um, into my current research projects. So right now I'm working on a project with uh, the Emerlin Telescope. We're observing disks from young stars. And I want to have the entire project um, as a demonstration of open science. So we're going to be reducing all the data using a Jupyter notebook so that anybody can just run the notebook and see exactly how we calibrated and analyzed the data. Um, We'll have all of the data linked to in the manuscript, and the manuscript will be open access. Cool. Um, So some listeners might not know what a Jupyter notebook is. Would you want to give a look? brief rundown on what exactly that is. So a Jupyter Notebook is an IPython notebook. Um, Python is a programming language that is very widely used um, in science these days because it's open source, it's got a vast library, um, and it's very well documented. And what uh, the Jupyter Notebook is, is it's more of an online interface to running Python commands, which makes it really easy to, to demonstrate different functions and script commands. Cool. And I guess people don't need um, uh, to know what their computer's doing. They can just do it all through a web browser. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So uh, one thing you've been uh, organizing is the HerPlus data meetups, which is something that's not quite uh, specific to astronomy. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about how you've got involved with that? Yep. So while I was in Dublin, um, HerPlus Data, which is a women in data meetup group, uh, was founded, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, but at the time, I knew I was moving to Manchester, so I um, asked the founder, Karen Church, if I could start a sister chapter in Manchester when I moved, and she was very enthusiastic about it. So um, when I came to Manchester and saw that it was a thriving uh, tech hub in itself, um, it really inspired me uh, to, to start this sister chapter of Herplus Data. And um, so I created the meetup group, uh, 
Professor Anna Scaife of the Interferometry Center of Excellence here at JPCA uh, sponsored our meetup page. So we had our kickoff meeting in September, and um, since then we've had one meetup each month. Uh, each meetup typically um, comprises a few lightning talks from various women across fields. So it's not just um, data science or astronomy necessarily. It's it's open and broad for anything to do with data. So um, data science, analytics, visualization, data within academia and research, but it also incorporates data art and data journalism. So it's really open to women just in science and technology who work with or love data and want to or have an interest in data and want to learn more. So um, it's been a really great way to build a support network of women across STEM fields. Um, it's really important, I believe, for us to share uh, stories and our shared experiences as an underrepresented group in STEM. Um, and I also find it's really important because when I attend other more general data or tech meetups across Manchester, um, the gender imbalance is still very visible. Um, and so this way we only have female speakers, only those who identify as women are allowed to attend. And so it really sort of builds up that confidence within our attendees. And we've already seen the impact. Um, it's been shown that women are less likely to apply for roles unless they meet 100% of the qualifications. But through Hair Plus Data, I've heard that some of our members have actually gotten that confidence boost and have applied for roles that maybe they believe they are too junior for, but it's given them that confidence boost. So we were already seeing an impact um, across Manchester, which is which is really inspiring. That's awesome. Um, the, the the members who turn up to the to this meetup group have they um, have they ever been to anything similar in Manchester in the past, or is this really the first thing that they've been able to get involved with? Um, there are lots of meetups in Manchester, so I believe every night you could probably attend a tech right. meetup. Um, there are a few women-specific meetups, such as Our Ladies and um, UX Ladies, which is, I believe, user experience um, and user interface design and such. Mm. Um, but this is the only one that is really only open to those who identify as female. Yeah, cool. Uh -huh. That's awesome. If you want to learn more or join Her Plus Data, um, there will be a link to our meetup page and our Twitter page. Um, I'd like to briefly plug the uh, Mozilla Global Sprint, which is a global two-day collaborative hackathon where anybody from around the world uh, can contribute to open projects on the web. Um, it's May 10th and 11th, um, and here at JBCA, I'll be hosting a local sprint site. So if you're interested in contributing to an open uh, science project, um, feel free to register. The link will be available. We'll put the link on the website. Yep. And we'll also include the link for the resources in um, for open science and astronomy, which I'm looking for contributors as well. Awesome. Thanks very much for speaking to us today, Rachel. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for that, Alex. Now, Tom Scrag interviews Dr. Stephen Longmore about star formation in the Galactic Center. Hello, I'm Tom Scrag. I'm here today with Dr. Stephen Longmore from Liverpool John Moores University. Yeah, hello. Hello and welcome. Your second time on the Jugcast. It is indeed. It was uh, quite a few years ago now, but yeah, it's great to be back. And welcome back. So, Liverpool John Moores University, how long have you been there? So, I've been there five years now. 
Okay. They have a big astronomy department? Yeah, so big and growing. So when I joined, eight new faculty joined, and we've been sort of growing in terms of PhD students and undergraduates and things. So, yeah, it's a definitely a growing department. Okay. You run your own telescope? We do, yeah. This is one of the sort of unique things. We run a telescope on La Palma. So it's the largest fully robotic telescope in the world. So it's designed to go after things that go bang, like supernova and nova, get on them as quick as possible after they've been discovered. Robotic in the sense you control it remotely? Yes, in robotic and autonomous. So, in other oh, words, right. yeah, it's set up and somebody clicks open the dome and then it decides what it's going to observe. So it will depend on what's up at that time and what they're trying to monitor. So it's completely automated. It's quite amazing. Oh, wow. Okay. The downside of that, of course, is no trips to La Palma. Yeah, there are very <laughs> few, very few. Yeah. We get quite a few people going out to use the different telescopes there, so... Yes, yes. I'm sure there's a lot of bidding for time on the various telescopes. Absolutely. Okay, what's generally your fields of interest? So I'm interested in star formation. So my sort of overarching theme is sort of... We know the universe starts out as gas and eventually ends up in stars. I'm trying to figure out how does that happen? How do we get this spectacular variety of stars and planets that we see around us? We've covered star formation a little bit in the recent past, mm-hmm. so it's quite topical. It's quite an interest. I know you're here to do a talk today at um, JBCA. Yep. So I'm looking forward to that. But you're talking about star formation in the, the heart of the galaxy? Yes. And some kind yes. of anomaly there? Yes. But what's really interesting about this, I guess most star formation, when people study, they tend to go for things that are very nearby. And there's a good reason for that, because they're brighter, you can study them in more detail. So a lot of what we know about, for example, how our solar system formed is from observations of regions nearby Earth. That's got its pros, but one of the difficulties there is, in fact, the environment where stars are forming nearby Earth today is not the environment in which most stars formed. So it turns out most stars in the universe formed sort of a long, long time ago, so around the redshift of two. So the universe was still very young, and the conditions back then were completely different. The gas was a lot hotter, okay. a lot uh, denser, and we want to understand how most stars in the universe formed. And it turns out the centre of our galaxy is a very good proxy for what was happening in the early universe. Oh, interesting. I thought of it that way. Does it varies with the metallicity? Yes. The composition of the gas clouds? Yeah. So is that different at the centre of the galaxy from the rest of our galaxy? It is, yeah. So okay. the metallicity is higher than it is in the solar neighbourhood, but the main difference is, is the gas is a lot more, is a lot hotter and a lot more dense. So does your work involve lots of times, lot of time on telescope panel collecting data? Or? It does, yes. Yeah. So I'm using primarily ALMA, the interferometer on the Atacama Desert in Chile. It's just an amazing instrument. So many new discoveries with the telescope. Is that infrared? Near it's, infrared? No, that's, that's uh, in the submillimeter. It's a radio telescope. It does get confusing when we talk about frequencies and wavelengths. Yes, in terms of frequencies, it's sort of hundreds of gigahertz, and wavelengths, it's millimeter wavelengths. This portion of the electromagnetic spectrum is excellent at picking up the cold universe. So the cold regions where stars are about to form, as they're collapsing under their own gravity, this gas is very cold, and ALMA's designed to be able to detect and derive the properties of that very cold gas. Okay. So what is it you're actually looking at in terms of a signal or a marker that helps decipher what's going on? Yes, I'm looking for basically clouds of gas and dust. So the dust, just like if you haven't cleaned for a week and dust will accumulate in your house. So it turns out there are particles of dust throughout the hole permeating the gas in between stars. And we're looking for this gas and this dust that's in a very cold phase. So it's getting very cold and very dense and it's collapsing to form stars. So this dust glows and it glows at this millimetre wavelength regime. And ALMA 
can pick up that glow from the dust, and with that we can pinpoint where new stars are forming in the centre of the galaxy. Okay. Alma's an interferometer? It is. So you're actually making pictures as well as measurements? Absolutely, yeah. So there's sort of 64 antennas that are all pointing at the same region of the sky, and the signals are combined to simulate a, observing with, with a very, very large telescope, and they give us this information we need. Okay. So what's the anomaly in the centre of the galaxy then? Why is it more closer to... From observations, we know what the gas temperature was like early in the universe so we can go measure that we can look back and see when the universe was only a few sort of uh, 100 million years after the big bang and we know that the gas was much hotter maybe 100 kelvin as opposed to so so 10 kelvin uh, which is in sort of star forming clouds near us and so we look around the universe and say well where are regions that have that kind of gas temperature and we look in the center of our galaxy it also has gas temperatures of similar. Right. I hadn't appreciated the more outlying regions were significantly colder and the centre was hotter. So presumably affects the rates of collapse, the rates of formation. It, it does. It, it, changes, it changes a lot of the physics that drives what's going to form stars. One of the big puzzles is that we know, on the one hand, we know there's a lot of gas in the centre of the galaxy and it's very dense, but it's not forming stars like it, sh- it would be if you took that same gas and you put it in the solar neighbourhood, it would be forming stars like crazy. But we know that it's not in the galactic centre. So there's this conundrum of how does the universe manage to get all this gas in a very small volume and stop it collapsing? So that's the physics I'm really interested in. Is what's There's some process that's supporting the clouds from collapsing, and we're trying to understand what that physics is. All right, okay. How's it going? Good. I think we've got the answer. So this is science, so it may well be proven wrong, but we're, um, so what I'm here today is to present our results that we think we understand. So what's actually happening, uh, you can sort of visualise this as when you have your bath and you pull out the plug from the bath, the water spirals down and you create little whirlpools and things. Well, the same thing happens towards the centre of our galaxy as the gas gets funnelled in and it spirals in towards the bottom of the gravitational potential, so that's where the centre of the galaxy is. As it's in-spiralling in here, it's adding turbulent energy into the gas. So it's the angular momentum mm-hmm. is being transferred into basically supporting the gas against its own weight. So this okay. in-spiralling motion, we think, is the key to the fact that you can get gas to very high density, but there's more energy in the gas to stop it collapsing. That's what we think the answer is. So do you think it's due to the Rotational motion rather than additional heating, say? Or? The heating is very important, but it would still collapse. So it would collapse in a different way. It would collapse to form stars, but it would do it slightly differently. You need additional energy on top of that extra energy from the heat to the extent we see. That, how much time have you spent, or have you managed to get on ALMA to get the observation? A lot. We've been very lucky, so it's incredibly competitive to get time. So we've had many tens of hours of time on ALMA, so we've been very fortunate. And I've been supported, in fact, by people here at the ALMA Regional Centre in Manchester, so they've been a fantastic support for us, uh, helping us reduce and, and understand our data. So, yeah, we've been very lucky. Okay. No, it's good. Luck is always a, a factor yep, in these things. absolutely. Right place, right time, yep. information. Yes. So, how did you get into this area? What sparked your interest in star formation in the first place? I guess the overarching question I've always been intrigued by is, how did all this get here? Where does life come from? Where is it in the universe? I mean, that's such a, a large and intractable problem. I think it's, you know, when many of us maybe look up at the stars and, and think, well, what, what else is out there? But this is a way to tackle one small portion of that bigger question. I, it gets me up of a morning. <laughs> okay. Do you work on your own or do you have a team of, oh, uh, of yeah. people? 
yeah, so this is very much part of a team. So I've got a group. I've got some been lucky enough again to have some great um, postdocs and PhD students and international collaborators all around America and Australia and Europe. So it's very much part of an international uh, collaboration working on this. Well, moving on slightly, how long do you think before this kind of research becomes incorporated into the, the next generation of textbooks? So it becomes something that's taught to new students. Excellent question. I'd like to hope fairly soon, really. I guess the problem is there's already some fantastic textbooks out there mm. on star formation. I think our current pictures being overhauled at the moment. We're in a state of going from, as I say, from looking at individual regions nearby the sun to really having a picture on trying to link that to what's happening on galactic scales. I think in the next five to ten years, we will linking that very small scale picture, so how does an individual star and its planets form, to the very larger scale picture, how what's happening in galaxies. And once we've made that connection, then I think we need to we can go back to our textbooks and come up with a fresh I'm um, not saying that other things were wrong, but we just have that bigger picture that will enable us to, to sort of get the holistic understanding. I think that's, you know, on, on five to ten years time scale. It certainly seems when you're reading textbooks from ten years ago, sometimes five years ago, yeah. you think, I'm sure all that's different now. <laughs> yes, I know, yeah. <laughs> we progressed. Yeah. Yes. Another question that's slightly to the side. There's a lot of interest, has been a lot of interest recently, in planetary formation from the disks of stars form. Yeah. Given different conditions at the centre of the galaxy, is it potentially going to be a different mechanism or affect that process? That is a fantastic question. That's exactly what we're trying to answer. So there's this issue about them not forming very efficiently. But when they do form, they form like crazy. And so what you get in the galactic centre is you get clusters of stars, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of stars forming in the distance between us and our nearest star. So trying to form that amount of stars in such a small volume, you think that the physics... And, you know, disks, because the stars are whizzing past each other, the disks would get truncated. It's a horrible place to be born inside (laughs) one of these star clusters. You do not want to be near a very massive star with all the the radiation and the winds coming from those stars. So intuitively, there's something that has to be different. And because we don't have very many examples, we're not sure. What's perplexing is that when you look at the end product of star formation, so when you look at, say, you count the distribution of, the, you count the masses of stars in the clusters, and you compare that distribution to the masses of stars nearby Earth, they're the same. Which, given, you know, intuitively okay. you'd think it would be much more difficult in a cluster. Stars trying to form a star in a cluster would be much more difficult. But yet the end process, it doesn't seem to care. So there's this, another conundrum there, and we, we haven't got to the bottom of that one either. Right. That's interesting. I mean, again, going back to some of the things we've discussed before, in the early universe, you know, a lot of hotter, brighter, bigger stars. Yes, yes. And now we're seeing conditions where the stars in general are smaller and live longer, which is fortunate for us, as yeah. we wouldn't be here. Do you see the same effect? Are you saying they're the same end product? So is that the same sort of mass range that you see? Yes, yeah, so one way of putting it would be, if you, you were to go to the centre of the galaxy and you, I was to ask you to count the mass of 10,000 stars, and then I was to say, right, to do exactly the same thing, within the vicinity of the solar neighbourhood, and you were to count the mass of those stars, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Given the conditions are so different, that is a big puzzle. Why is this distribution the same in both environments? And there are people have got ideas of what it might be, but there's definitely no home run on what the answer to that is. That's interesting. And all of the, in some cases, you're talking about individual processes. Yeah. In other cases, it's 
a statistical result yes. or a pop result, an evaluation of a population. Yeah. Okay. What's the next couple of years of work? For me, so yeah. I'm now that we've found these, we've used Alma to find these gas clouds. With Alma, we've been able to zoom in in high detail these gas clouds, and we've managed to pick out the regions that we think are forming some of the most massive stars in the galaxy. And they're they're very young, and these very massive stars are incredibly important for the way the universe evolves because they're so massive, they're so luminous, they inject so much energy into galaxies that they completely shape the way galaxies evolve and the way they look today. The problem is we don't know how these very massive stars form. So what I'm really interested in is trying to, so we've found what we think are these initial stages of these extremely massive stars. The group I'm working with, we're trying to now zoom in to exquisite detail and watch how these things form. So to look at how these stars are building their mass. And if we can understand the physical processes that control that, then that will help us understand how galaxies evolve uh, across cosmological timescales. Wow. That's really looking across a huge timescale and right back to the early universe. That's the hope. That's the ambitious goal. We'll see how far we get, but that's the... Oh, yeah, well, I'll look forward to that. Yeah. look forward to you coming back in a couple of years. Yeah. This is your main project, yes. obviously. Yeah. Are there other projects that you work on as well? Yeah, so several in astronomy. So the one that I guess I'm most, probably most off the wall is I've started using astronomy to help conservation ecologists. Okay. So this is what? <laughs> so it turns out my next door neighbour is an ecologist. And one of their big problems is trying to, with endangered species, things like rhino, which are being poached. And so they have a big difficulty in trying to find these animals. So what we've been doing is to take drones and put thermal cameras on the drones. And so they fly these drones over these national parks. And we're using astronomy software to pinpoint where the animals are. So astronomers are very good at detecting weak signals, isolating, for example, stars from the background. So we've developed all this software. And right. instead of, so we're basically using, doing astronomy, but instead of pointing out into space, we're pointing back down to Earth. So I'm wow. involved in that and quite excited about it. It's uh, different to get up in the morning and, and do ecology as opposed to astronomy. So That's very interesting. We do see a lot of the students that we have that do the courses, do their PhDs, and move over into to data science. Yes. Processing information rather yep. than just sticking uh, straightforwardly with astronomy. Yep. And it's I mean, it's interesting to see the practical applications of some absolutely. of this work as well. Yep. The skills you learn as, as an astronomer are widely applicable elsewhere with a bit of inventiveness you could apply your trade elsewhere and hopefully do some real good at the same time yeah it's, it's interesting to use drones as well so it's moving away from just satellite observations of the earth to to more mobile platforms absolutely so yeah there's a whole other story we'll be getting <laughs> yes. to with that one outside of astronomy yeah. and ecology then yeah. what do you like to do so i love music so when I'm often when I'm sort of beavering away on a data set or sort of writing a paper, I'm sort of listening to music and hoping no one comes into the office to see me sort of, you know, jamming around with my headphones on. So yeah, I love music, I love sport, football, running, um, anything to sort of keep active. Right. Yes, it's important. You've got to balance things. A lot oh, yeah. of people will spend will just focus all their energies in front of the screen. Yeah, I can. That's the same thing. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for that, Stephen. It's yeah. been nice talking to you. Yeah, that's great talking to you too. Thanks for coming. Yeah. I look forward to your talk later today. Excellent. Good. <laughs> thanks for that, Tom. Now we come to my favourite part of the show, where we fit in all the other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, and that's the odds and ends. So Hubble has recently basically taken a picture of the most distant star that we've ever seen so far. This star is at a redshift of 1.49 
And that's so far back that the universe was less than a third of its current age where the star is situated. So it's incredibly far away. And how Hubble has managed to capture this image of this distant star is with a bit of help from two gravitational lensing events. So one gravitational lens is a foreground galaxy. It's a really heavy, massive galaxy, and it actually bent the incoming light from this distant star, just like a lens would bend the light so that it can focus. And the other bit of gravitational lensing magic was a micro-lensing event, so a much less massive object. We don't quite know what it is, but it was something much closer to the star, and we think it's something like another star, a neutron star, or a small black hole that initially bent the light from the star and sent it on its way to the second gravitational lensing event, and then eventually on to Hubble. And we know so much about this incredibly far away object, actually. We know that the star is a bright, supergiant star, and it's a B-class star, so it's in the class of the second brightest and second biggest type of stars that we know. And so it's much hotter and much bigger than the sun, and it's bright blue. So this is a really fantastic and interesting event, because now we're getting information from some of the first stars formed in the universe. That's really cool. And to have the alignment of one yeah, uh, galaxy I mean, lens. Yeah, the, yeah the, the chances of having two lensing events is amazing. Yeah. Plus, micro-lensing events are what we call transient events. So mm-hmm. it's a small object, and they're moving all around. So the chances of that lighting up again are just astronomical. Yeah. Yeah. Did they have any <laughs> yeah. guesses to what this micro-lens could be? They know the mass of it because, well, when you work with gravitational lensing, you can get masses out. So we know that the micro-lensing object must have been about three times the mass of the sun, but, you know... Pretty big, then. Yeah, so three times the mass of the sun, but obviously it's only one object. It's not an entire galaxy mm-hmm. like the other lens was. So it's probably another star. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. pretty cool. So Z equals one, was it you said? 1.5. 1.5, okay. Yeah. In terms of, like, comparing this to the light from the first stars, and mm-hmm. I'm doing air quotes when we were talking about the 21 centimetre lines that we saw... Yeah. So, in comparison, this is quite a lot more recent, right? Or? Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot closer than, mm-hmm. the, than the first stars, but it's actually a direct image. So, this is how the star would look like. You would actually see it in right. optical, which is what Hubble is, because, of course, 21 centimeter radiation is radio. Yeah. So, it's massively redshifted and all of that. So, to see it in Hubble means that you're actually seeing this light. Yeah, so you're seeing it yeah. as though you'd be seeing it through your own eyes yeah. sort of thing. That's pretty, pretty cool, much, yeah. Like, yeah. That's, that's pretty awesome. So this is the earliest star we've directly seen in optical, then? Yeah. That's really cool. Who was it who actually saw this? Um, or, um, oh, sorry, but obviously it's the Hubble, but was it... Uh, yeah, I don't know who the team is. The paper is out if you want to read it. It's in the April 2nd edition of Nature Astronomy. I guess we'll put a link to that on the website. Yeah. and there's also a Hubble press release as mm-hmm. well, yeah. So a little bit closer to home, but not that close. The IAU have just officially approved the names of the first features on the surface of Pluto's largest moon. So the largest moon is Sharon, which is spelled C-H-A-R-O-N, and is pronounced Sharon or Chiron, and it's actually named after the ferryman on the river Hades, or after the discoverer, James Christie's wife, Charlene, and he found a name that fit the sort of naming conventions of moons and, and planets at that time. That's a slight difference, isn't it, between Karen, the guy who's taking you to Hades, or Sharon, my wife. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is why we have the two pronunciations. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so, the, so the Sharon was discovered in 1978, but it wasn't until New Horizons in 2015 that we could actually image the surface. Mm. And... 
the service has lots of nice craters and crevasses and valleys and things like that. And you can find the images online and we'll put some links in the show notes as well. And then in 2015, after the first sort of New Horizons images were released, the New Horizons team started a naming campaign to get public involvement in the naming of these surface features. Ah, now, so it was Pluto yeah. Muck Pluto Face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily, people were a bit more sensible than that. But um, so they, they they collated through a website, ourpluto.org, uh, a lot of names public suggestions uh, and then ratified it basically through the IAU who are the official body that do these things and there's some really great names because they're named after sort of real or fictitious explorers and adventurers and, and visionaries and things like that so I picked a few favourites here there is the Dorothy Creator who's named after Dorothy Gale from L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz books there's Butler Mons, which is named after Octavia E. Butler who is a science fiction writer and it's someone whose books I've had on my must read list for a while but I haven't got that far down the list yet Another science fiction writer, there's the Clark Montez, which is named after Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who is a prolific science fiction writer, I'm sure many of you know, and and who wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey. And to match that, there is also Kubrick Mons, named after the film director Stanley Kubrick, who made the film of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's quite an array of people, really. Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple more, uh, <laughs> which are... Uh, because I learned something while I was reading this as well. So there's the Ravati creator, named after a character in a Hindu epic narrative, which is the Muhabharata, and which is the, possibly the first ever written work to include the concept of time travel. Oh, wow. 400 years BC, <laughs> which is really cool. Uh, and then my final two that I liked from the list were the Nemo creator, which is named after the Jules Verne character, not the fish. Ah, oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and then the Argo Chasma, which is sadly not named after long-term Jad Caster Megan Argo, but after the Jason and the Argonaut <laughs> ship. Um, not so. August the no, the shop. not the shop oh, either. No, no. <laughs> I think we can pretend that it was uh, named after Megan. Like, yeah, that's, that's nicer for us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's really a really cool selection of names, and, mm. and it's sort of nice to see things named after sort of contemporary people. I yeah, mean, I guess. Yeah, It's a pretty random mix of people, actually, yeah. from the sounds of what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah. and there's a, there's a few more from, from places around the world yeah. as well. I think Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz is quite an interesting <laughs> yeah. one. Like, Want to go home? <laughs> but I, yeah, it's also nice to see sort of the public engaging with naming yes, you know, yeah. things around Pluto, because there was all that outcry when Pluto was designated no longer a planet. <laughs> yeah. As an astronomer, that's something that still comes up. People took it very much to heart. I don't Why think. did you stop yeah, it being a exactly. planet? Well, it wasn't me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Blame people, me or the grass Tyson. Yeah, people were, yeah, people were very emotional about it, so it's great to see them reconnecting yeah. with, with this, you know, I guess you call it a lost planet. Yeah. And being at home, make, we're making it ours again, and we feel like, you know, it's, it's back in the fold, and we still love it, which is great. Taking ownership, eh? Yeah. That's really cool. So, so this is stuff that's come from the 2015 images, then, and they're yes. just like they're like gradually getting around to naming everything. Yeah, I, I think it just takes a long while for like, yeah. the IAU to process you know, everything. Yeah, to identify things. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. I guess especially if you're doing a big public. Yes. So. Yeah. I think so. From what I saw, was they had to agree a naming convention, and then they had to pick names that filled within the naming convention, and so, yeah. So no boat, team up boat face yeah. horrors were going <laughs> to ensue, that's quite sensible. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Coming even closer to Earth, I've brought something about the, actually the moon, and the possibility of another NASA lunar program. Yeah, so that should be pretty awesome if they actually do it. So I think it hasn't actually been approved yet. So there's been a letter that's gone together, which has a number of leading researchers and actually people from the business community as well who've signed it, which is going into Congress 
they're hoping to get $218 million to support further exploration of the moon. So that'd be pretty awesome if they can actually get that money, because obviously we've not been to the moon in quite a while now. They've also made note in this article that it, they're trying to race China now. So I guess it's feeling a bit like when they were trying to race the Russians yeah. uh, not that long ago. But, um, well, I wasn't around for most of that, so it'd be nice to be around for exactly, you know, Race number night, two, yeah. like Luna, Luna 2. Um, but I think the Chinese are planning on trying to get up by 2020. So funnily enough, in this letter that they've addressed to Congress, they've suggested that they're going to aim for 2019. Oh, of course. Oh. Which is... Uh, <laughs> It's an interesting one, isn't it? But, of course, it remains to be seen as to whether they'll actually get the funding, but it would be really cool if they could, because there's actually a lot of really cool science you could do from the moon if we were to actually invest in it. Personally, I'm going to be a bit biased here and say that what I'd like to do is put a CMB telescope on the moon, because, basically, you don't have any of the sort of atmospheric issues that you get on Earth. In the Earth, you have the atmosphere, which has all of, like, precipital water vapour, so there's just, like, water particles floating around. And that blocks a lot of the radio waves from getting through. If we were to place a telescope on the Moon, that gets rid of a lot of these atmospheric effects. So that's a bit of a bias plug for putting a radio telescope on the Moon. I'm sure lots of other people would have reasons well, I think, for that, too. Yeah, any um, uh, infrared or submillimeter telescope would yeah. be ideally situated on the Moon as well, mm-hmm. but... Did you say $280 million? $218 million, it's saying. That is surprisingly cheap. It is, isn't it? So so they've got $18 million to continue the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and then they want $200 million for other lunar research activities, such as procuring flights on commercially developed lunar lander missions. Ah, So I think the rest of the money is coming from... Businesses, yeah, Yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. So it's going to be like a SpaceX style thing, I guess. The main things that they're making the point of here is that they want to use resources on the moon to be able to look at more lunar rocks and stuff like that. But personally, from an astro point of view, I'd rather they thought a bit bigger and thought about putting maybe an interferometer on there or something similar. Because that'd be exciting, right? (laughs) Like an interferometer on the dark side of the moon, like. That would be, yeah. yeah. Let's just build Alma on the dark side of the moon. That would work, right? Like, <laughs> Alma 2.0 or Almoon. Almoon, oh, excellent. Almoon. Yes. <laughs> you first, folks. Yeah, we should write that proposal. Let's, let's start on it after the Jogcast recording. <laughs> Keep you in work for a lot longer, yes. wouldn't it? You've got a whole like second it. array. Like. <laughs> it might be a bit more difficult to visit, but... <laughs> I still haven't made it to Chile to visit the telescope, so oh, I fair, it's on fair. the moon, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I suppose they're both pretty far away from here, really, aren't they? Yeah. It doesn't make much difference. <laughs> that kind of sums up what I had to say on it, but the moon's there, we could use it. I, I realise it would be very expensive, but I think it would be worthwhile from a science yeah. perspective. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Gone all that certainly. way, you might as well. Exactly, you know, exactly. Rather than just picking up bits of rock, which is still important yeah. science. So, yeah. <laughs> even if NASA don't end up going, it would be really cool, if, even if, say, it's China who decide to start putting things on there, because we don't utilise this really nice, no atmosphere yeah. sort of, yeah. object which is like vaguely near us in the grand scheme of things so it'd be imagine if china just uprooted fast fast which is the the single largest radio telescope yeah. dish in the world mm. 500 meters across 500 meters, yeah. imagine they just picked that bad boy up and, um... <laughs> just blew it up yeah. uh, that'd, that'd be, be pretty cool yeah. <laughs> and now from answering astronomical questions on the moon to answering astronomical questions in our studio unsung lee asked dr ian mcdonald your ask an astronomer questions 
Francis Day, I remember the Ask an Astronomer section where it was said that black holes could not account for dark matter. Also, I gather that medium-sized black holes were thought not to exist. Now here is NASA saying the opposite. It would be great if the Jodcast could tell us more. Well, I certainly hope we can oblige. We generally see two kinds of black holes in the universe today. Most black holes are created when very massive stars undergo supernovae, and these end up a few times the mass of the Sun. The other kind, supermassive black holes, are found in the centre of galaxies, and they're a few million times the mass of the Sun. How these supermassive black holes form and grow has been a matter of some debate over the last few decades. In stellar systems, which can be anything from small clusters to big galaxies, there's a process called mass segregation which occurs. And when a star forms in a cluster, or near the centre of the galaxy, it's got some motion compared to the stars around it, and as each star moves, it comes closer to the other stars in the cluster or galaxy, and they gravitationally interact with each other. This can form binary stars, but more usually the two stars kind of dance past each other, exchanging energy and moving off in different directions and different speeds to which they started with. On average, the smaller star gets more energy from the bigger star, so it can be kicked out of the cluster, while the bigger star loses energy and sinks towards the middle of the cluster. So the middle of a cluster or galaxy contains the biggest stars in the end, and that can include black holes. And because black holes are heavier than the average star, they tend to sink towards the middle of clusters and galaxies. Over time scales of millions or billions of years, they're thought to congregate in the middle of galaxies. And earlier this month, there was evidence published that there's maybe tens of thousands of stellar mass black holes in the middle of our galaxy as a result of this mass segregation process. Once black holes congregate in the middle of a galaxy, they can start interacting with each other. Some of these interactions will form new binary systems, made of either a star plus a black hole, or made of a pair of black holes. Even once a black hole is in a binary system like this, gravitational interaction with other stars keep happening. These tend to force the two components of the binary system closer together, a process called hardening. And in binary hardening, a pair of objects comes closer and closer together. If the binary is made of a star and a black hole, the star will be gradually sucked into the black hole, forming an X-ray binary system. But if both objects in the binary are black holes, gravitational radiation will take over, and the two black holes will coalesce into one bigger black hole. Now, we don't know if supermassive black holes can be formed in this way, but it's thought that intermediate-mass black holes might. Now, these intermediate-mass black holes are maybe a few thousand times the mass of the Sun, and until recently we didn't have any good evidence that they existed. Many astronomers have claimed in the past to find evidence for intermediate-mass black holes, but it's been hard to prove that these are actually black holes. Since black holes are black, we have to look for their influence in other stars. And one good place to look for intermediate mass black holes is in the centre of globular clusters, where there are lots of stars very close together. These should betray the presence of any nearby black holes. Globular clusters are bigger than the open clusters we see forming in our galaxy today, but smaller than the galaxy in their own right. We think these form in very violent events when galaxies crashed into each other, and we see these globular clusters undergoing the processes of mass segregation and hardening of binaries, so they should be able to form and retain black holes in the centres themselves. In the centres. Some of the best evidence for intermediate mass black holes actually comes from a recent paper published by a pulsar group at Jodrell Bank. This found good evidence for a black hole of at least 20,000 times the mass of our Sun in the globular cluster NGC 6624. So we think that there are intermediate mass black holes out there, but they're hard to find. And we don't yet know how many of them there are, 
and what role they play in putting together the supermassive black holes in the middle of galaxies. Stanley Fertig, Mars lost its original CO2-rich atmosphere due to sputtering caused by the solar wind, against which Mars's lack of the magnetic field provided little or no protection. Venus as well lacks a strong magnetic field, yet has kept its atmosphere. Why Mars and not Venus? The density and the composition of a planet's atmosphere is quite a delicate and complex balance between a few different things. This includes how it interacts with the Sun and what the planet's surface is below it. The most important factor is the radiation the planet receives from its star. This dictates the chemistry that goes on in its atmosphere, which chemicals be gases or clouds, and which will be liquids or solids on the surface. Since Venus is a lot closer to the Sun than Mars, its surface is hotter, but as we'll see, this isn't the end of the story. There's two main ways that the Sun can evaporate a planet's atmosphere, either because charged particles from the solar wind sandblast the atmosphere off into space, or because the atmosphere gets so hot that it literally starts boiling off the planet. Boiling off material from a planet is simple. If the gas in the atmosphere is going faster than gravity can hold it, it will escape. The critical point is reached when the bulk of the gas is going at about a sixth of the escape velocity, and then some of the atoms will go fast enough to escape the planet's gravity. We call this genes escape. And the lighter the molecule, the faster it will go. None of the terrestrial planets was big enough or cool enough to retain its original atmosphere of hydrogen or helium, but most other molecules tend to be stable enough to stay in the atmosphere. After hydrogen and helium, carbon and oxygen are the next most abundant elements that formed our solar system, so carbon dioxide became a major part of the atmospheres of all the early terrestrial planets, including the Earth. And if you heat up a gas, its molecules will travel faster, so hot planets lose their atmospheres faster. But the temperature of a planet's atmosphere isn't always the same as its surface, and Venus's atmosphere is full of very white clouds. These keep the surface hot, but they also reflect a lot of the sun's light, which means that the top of Venus's atmosphere is surprisingly cool. The top of the atmospheres of Venus and Mars actually have very similar temperatures. But Mars has a lower gravity, and this makes boiling off the atmosphere from Mars easier than it is from Venus. So while Mars's atmosphere is evaporating, that's probably not the main reason for the difference in the planet's atmospheric density. Even if a molecule is too heavy to undergo genes escape, it can be still stripped off the planet by the solar wind. On Earth, we're protected from this because the solar plasma interacts with our magnetic field, and that diverts the solar wind around the planet. Venus and Mars don't have strong magnetic fields to protect them. Venus rotates too slowly, and the core of Mars is solidified. However, Venus's atmosphere does protect itself. Plasma generated by the solar wind forms an ionosphere around the planet, and this buffers the planet against further damage by the solar wind, a bit like a bowel shock forms around a supersonic aeroplane. Mars's atmosphere doesn't have the density to do this effectively, so the atmosphere of Mars is more readily lost to sputtering by the solar wind. However, perhaps the most important factor is how the planet's crust and atmosphere interact. On Earth, we've got photosynthetic life, weathering of rocks, sequestration of carbon into the oceans, and plate tectonics, and these all play a role in removing carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. In about a billion years, the sun will get bright enough to evaporate the oceans, and this will kill life and stop plate tectonics. And at this point, we'll end up with an atmosphere that is much more like Venus's than Earth's atmosphere is today. Venus already lacks these influences, which is why its water and CO2 are almost entirely in its atmosphere. Because Mars's surface is colder, most of its water and CO2 are locked up in its ice caps and underground. 
If these were released all into the atmosphere at the same time, Mars's atmosphere would actually end up about as dense as Earth's is today. So while the atmosphere of both planets is beginning to gradually be eroded by the solar wind, the difference between the atmospheres of Venus and Mars is probably more down to the lower temperature of Mars condensing its atmosphere out into its surface. And stone, the universe has been in existence for billions of years. In that time, stars have converted a huge amount of matter to energy. Photons exert a pressure and have a theoretical mass. Couldn't this account for dark matter and dark energy? Well, we have no idea what dark matter and dark energy actually are, but we can rule out things that they aren't. And photons happen to be one of the things we can rule out, if only because it's rather perverse to talk about dark things being made of light. It's quite a complicated problem to work out exactly how much light there is in the universe, but this is actually one of those questions you can solve on the back of an envelope using a little bit of dimensional analysis, that is, making crude estimates with very approximate numbers. Let's first look at the universe's budget of mass and energy. Photons don't actually have a mass, but they do have a rest mass. Mass energy equivalence equals mc squared tells us they can still contribute to the rest mass energy of the universe. Results from the Planck satellite suggest that dark energy accounts for roughly 68% of the universe's rest mass energy, while 26% is in dark matter. Now we know these numbers are accurate to within about a percent or two, because otherwise they would influence the curvature of the universe, the universe's expansion history, and the abundance of the elements that were forged in the Big Bang. And this means that baryons, what we'd call normal matter, only account for about 5% of the universe, actually slightly less. So surprisingly, most of this 5% is also missing. Using a technique known as the Sinaev-Zeldovich effect, we know that most of this baryonic mass is in the very diffuse gas that exists between stars and galaxies. It doesn't emit much light, especially at optical wavelengths, but it makes up the majority of the normal matter in the universe. In fact, it's estimated that only about 0.2% of the universe is actually in the stars themselves. So what we think of as conventional astronomy really involves little more than 0.2% of the universe. If light is to explain dark matter, it must be more concentrated close to galaxies, since this is where we see the effects of dark matter to be. Normal stars are responsible for most of the light emitted by galaxies. The sun loses about 4 million tons worth of light every second. It converts 4 million tons of matter into energy and that's seven times more than it loses via the solar wind. But overall, this is still a very, very tiny fraction of its mass. The sun will get a lot brighter as it gets older, so this mass lost via light will increase, and most of its light that will emit over its entire lifetime is actually in two short periods just before the sun dies. Yet the sun will still only convert about three thousandths of its current mass into light. Stars live for a very different length of time, and each one converts a very different fraction of its mass back into light. However, we can roughly approximate that the Sun is a typical star, and that we can typically account for three different generations of stars throughout the lifetime of the universe so far. That means that we can multiply that three thousandths by three, and let's round up a bit to be generous, to say that there's about a hundred times more mass currently in stars than has ever been converted into light. So let's divide that 0.2% of matter in stars by a hundred, and we found that about two millionths of the universe's rest mass energy budget is actually made of photons. So that makes it a totally insignificant component of the universe's rest mass energy, and certainly not enough to account for the majority of the universe. Of course, this is a very approximate and hand-wavy argument, but it shows how physicists can quickly obtain a rough guess at the answer using just a few facts. 
In reality, the dominant source of radiation in the universe is still the cosmic microwave background, and while this may seem a feeble light to us, it only heats up the universe to about 2.7 degrees above absolute zero, it's evenly spread among the universe almost exactly, and so it adds up to quite a lot. In fact, the cosmic microwave background alone can account for about one ten-thousandth of the entire universe. So rather curiously, then, we live in a universe where this feeble heat not only contains almost all the light in the universe, but that effectively weighs about 5% as much as the stars themselves. So there really is a whole universe out there waiting to be discovered. Thanks for that, Unsung and Ian. And if you have any questions for our astronomers, please feel free to send them. We are slowly running out, so we could do with some more. So if you go to our website, you'll find all the contact details you need. And from there, we can move on to the feedback. So first up, we have the post. So we've actually had a postcard from Keith Black, who's written to us from Thailand. It's got a nice image on the front of a lovely-looking beach, which looks a hell of a lot warmer than Manchester does. Oh, yep. yeah. Um, nice uh, trees in the background. Is that the moon in the picture as well? Could be. I mean, it's a bit distorted. Oh, no. But <laughs> <laughs> Let's just pretend it is. It's a big white thing in the sky, so why not? <laughs> Cool, so I'll just read this out. So we've got, Hi, Jodcast team. Greetings from sunny Thailand. Keep up the great work on the podcast, which I think is the best astronomy one out there. Thanks very much for that. So Phuket is far enough south to see the Southern Cross, a beautiful constellation, and to glimpse the uh, Magellanic Clouds if you have a good southern horizon. But fewer observatories than Hawaii. So, um, oh, we said see previous postcard for that one. So I don't actually have that on me at the minute. And we have a... A lot of postcards on the walls, so I it's think probably might be somewhere. struggling to find which one he means, but I'm sure it's there. Anyway, so he signs off with fond regards, uh, Keith Black. Thanks for that, Keith. And I guess that brings us on to Facebook. Yeah, so there have been a few Facebook comments on the Fiona show, <laughs> <laughs> which was the farewell show for one of the Jodcasts. Yep. Members Fiona Healy. It's quite sad to see her go, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's been, been a big part of the show for a good few years Still now. Stalwart of the Jodcast and <laughs> I guess fan favourite as well. Martin Bancroft said, great rebrand, relaunch, rename. Oh, well, maybe so we should keep it. Fiona, Fiona <laughs> show. Um, might just suggest the Tana show. I know I'm only new here, but I'll throw my, you know, hat in the ring. Jonathan Shin said, ah, April Fool missed the title, but seriously, time for a new picture. And we agree here, the difficulty is to get us all together to take this picture, but that is definitely something that... Yeah, we should do that, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that needs to get done. So, look out for that new picture soon. Yeah, are we not due to, like, a, a party or something, like, in we the department? probably are. So I think before Christmas we went out for a little yeah. jaunt. Maybe we do need another... Spring has sprung, <laughs> the spring fling party, yeah, good work. Okay, and then on Twitter, also referring to the Fiona show, we have Yoda the Oak says, go, go, Fiona show, so clearly a fan there, and <laughs> Andrew Horner says, farewell, Fiona, and thank you for your many entertaining contributions to the Jogcast, you will be missed. And on Twitter, relating to the Jogcast, but not specifically the Fiona show, Someone spotted, we were mentioned in a conversation about insomnia, and someone was recommending the Jogcast as a, a cure for insomnia. <laughs> sleep uh, tool. Help, helping you go to sleep, um, which uh, we are very happy to help. Um, and Sarah B., who made the recommendation that Jogcast helps with her insomnia, helps get her to sleep, she wanted to qualify that she doesn't just listen in bed. Uh, uh, she also listens when she's walking the dog and many other times. She's when I listen when I'm walking the dog as well, so... 
Mm. I quite like this. We'll often be seen walking the dogs with the furrowed brow and stuck out tongue <laughs> of <laughs> intense concentration. That's <laughs> no, very, it's very amusing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, thank you for that, um, and we're happy to help. We're not just here to clarify the universe. We're for travellers, we're for dog walkers, we're for insomniacs, <laughs> yeah. we're for everyone. Everyone's invited. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for all of your feedback. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. Via Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can also send us post and the address is on the website. Okay, well, that just about rounds it up. So all that's left to do is do some thank yous. So thanks to Dr. Stephen Longmore and Rachel Ainsworth for the interviews. The editors were George Bender, Naomi Asabri-Frimpong, Alex Clark, and Jinjin Z. And the producer was George Bender. Until next time, job on! on!